0: Good morning to you all. You may have a seat if you'd like. You can remain standing if you'd like as well. Might be awkward, but hey, we're all about it here at Curtis Lake Church. Uh, Those of you at home, feel free to take a seat as well. Um, Many of you know that people at home are going to do whatever they want. Most of them aren't wearing clothes right now, so. uh, But thank you. Thank you for 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 changing out of your pajamas uh, into your regular clothes. Um, So we're going to get right into it this morning. Uh, How many of you want to, how many of you want to see Jesus having a temper tantrum? Anybody? No. All right. Well, then go home. I mean, because that's, that's what we're doing today. Um, Now, this is like, if you are, uh, if you're making kind of a video series of the life of Jesus, um, like we've been talking about over the last uh, couple months now, uh, the, about the life and the teaching of Jesus as told to us through uh, the Gospel of Luke. And uh, today we're going to come to one of those occasions where, like if you're watching the series, if you're watching the movie, this is the part uh, that you really, really like. Uh, there's been over the course of... Uh, Jesus' interaction with uh, the, his people, especially with the religious, especially with the overly righteous. There have been some cringe worthy moments, but today we're going to see Jesus just lose it. He's going to just lose it. And th- there's something about this part of Jesus, I think, that makes him a little easier for us to identify with, right? I mean, when Jesus is healing the blind and raising the dead, it's like, wow, that's, that's, those are great stories. But um, have you ever flipped out before? Have you ever had uh, just kind of uh, things come to this place where you couldn't take it anymore and you acted out? Uh, Well, Jesus is going to do that today, so we'll get to that. Luke chapter 19, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Uh, We'll have the verses up on the screen as well. But what we're ultimately getting to is now Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem. He's making his final voyage into the city where he's ultimately going to be crucified. Right? And so as we uh, near Easter, uh, we tend to kind of look at the story of Jesus and the week of passion that he had uh, in the city of Jerusalem prior to his crucifixion. And uh, there's this moment where Jesus enters into the city that we have labeled the triumphal entry. Which, of course, has always been an interesting sort of title for that. Uh, because of the way in which Jesus actually came into Jerusalem was not all that triumphal. He came in a pretty modest manner. Of course, the crowds, they gathered and they took palm branches and they waved and they celebrated and they they looked with joy to what Jesus kind of represented and what they thought, what they perceived he was ultimately going to do within their city and within their country. But there was no real triumph yet. At this point, right? And certainly the triumph, the ultimate triumph of Jesus was wholly misunderstood. But here uh, in the Gospel of Luke, we, we get this little story um, uh, that doesn't show up in any of the other gospel accounts. And so we're going to look at that. Uh, and then it immediately is followed by Jesus going into the temple and throwing over the tables and the money changers. And driving out those were, uh, who were involved in commerce within uh, within the house of God, right? But prior to that, as Jesus is coming upon the, um, the border of the city, this is what it says in Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept. Over, wept over the city of Jerusalem saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes." So Jesus, as he approaches the city and begins to look out on what is this or what is supposed to be this beautiful center of uh, the worship of the one true God, the city to whom people from all over the world come to experience the life, and the heritage, and the religion of this city. Jesus looks out on it and the Bible says he wept over it. And he cries out, if, you, if only you had known the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. And Jesus says, for the days will come upon you. When your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground you and your children within you and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time Of your visitation. I don't know if you caught that, but there's a couple of things here that Jesus is describing as things that the people of Jerusalem do not know. They do not know what it is that makes for peace. They do not know the time of their visitation. And then it says, and he entered the temple. So he comes into the city and he enters the temple and he began to drive out those who sold saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer. Jesus reminds those to whom he is interacting with now that that the house of God was intended to be a house of prayer, right? That is what is written in the scripture. My house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. That was spoken over the house of God hundreds and hundreds of years before This event, and Jesus says and reminds them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. But you have turned it into something else. You have made it into a den of robbers. So we're looking at uh, uh, this emotional outburst that Jesus has as he comes upon the city. Again, this part of the narrative is unique to Luke. You don't find this in any of the other Gospels. And I think that what Luke is trying to draw out again is uh, uh, the the humanity of Christ and just the, the, the humanity of the people to whom Christ came. Right? And, and just the disparity between uh, where the people are and where God wants them to be. And it, and it moves Jesus to sorrow. It says, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. That word wept has the connotation not just of simple remorse or shedding a tear, or feeling a little bit of regret for what might be going on there, or what might be characterizing the city or the the state of the city at that point. But when it says that he wept, it speaks of he lost it. Weeping, wailing, sobbing, just full of sorrow for this city that he loves, that he knows that God loves. And you know, as I read that, I think it gives us such a great insight into the heart and the mind of God. Think about it. Have you, have you ever thought, have you ever, or do you ever think about God as being capable of great sorrow? Do you ever think about God that way? Like we know sorrow. We've experienced sorrow. We've expressed sorrow and grief, the kind of sorrow that drives us to our knees, the kind of sorrow that feels like we'll never be able to get over, the kind of sorrow that just seems to blot out everything else that's going on around us. It just creates this dark cloud of existence, right? When we're going through the real depths and despairs of our own sorrow. We know sorrow. Have you ever thought of God? the creator of the universe, as being capable of sorrow. No, most often I think we think of God in one of two ways. We think of God as having this amazing capacity to love, right? The Bible tells us that God is love. Many of us have accepted, many of us have experienced the reality of what it means that God loves us. And then the other emotion that we often characterize God with is that of anger, right? Or wrath. We think of, like, it's easy for us to think of God as being angry. And he's up there in heaven looking down on the activity of this world that he created and the activity of the human beings that he has created. And, and he's angry about what he sees, right? And so we think of God in these capacities, a God of love and a God of wrath. What about the God of Sorrow. What made Jesus so sad? What what is it that made Jesus or led Jesus to this outburst of emotion where he's weeping and wailing for the city? I think it was like he recognized just how far away the people of the city were from the will of God for them, for what life. God wanted for them, for what experience God wanted for them. To some degree, they had settled for something less than what God wanted for them. To another degree, they were per- perpetrating injustices. They were certainly outside the scope of what God wanted for them. And Jesus is overwhelmed by a sorrow for the state that he finds the city in. And I Again, I just can't get away from the idea that I think it really gives us some great insight into a part of God that we so often forget about or neglect. And that is the sorrow that God feels for the activity of his people. In fact, I would go so far as to say that it seems that, that sorrow is almost more characteristic of God than wrath. Right? Again, it's easy to point out the times in which we see God as angry. Uh, you read through uh, many of the stories of scripture. And you will from time to time find God being very angry with what's going on. Very angry, angry with, the, with the, uh, the actions of an individual or the actions of a people. And, and, and so uh, sometimes that we, we look at God through this lens of, well, don't make God angry. But I think that the sorrow that overwhelms God is probably more characteristic of God's feeling toward us because of the love that he has for us, right? You've experienced this. You've, you've had those experiences in your life where somebody has done something. Uh, maybe it's uh, one of your children or somebody else that you love very much, and they've done something for which you'd be perfectly justified in being angry at. And yet, it's not anger so much that you feel, it's sorrow. Sorrow for what that person has done. Sorrow for what that decision has ultimately meant for that individual. Sorrow for the choice that, that you, you know your child has made that is going to bring incredible pain into their life that you don't want them to experience. And it's, you're not angry so much as you are filled with, with sorrow. And I think so oftentimes when it comes to you and I as the children of God and even who we are as the human race, God he looks and he's filled with with sorrow. And I think that sorrow is just more characteristic of who God is than the wrath. I mean, even take such incredible events that we read about in the Bible, like the flood. Remember in Genesis chapter six, it records the story of when God flooded the earth and destroyed all mankind with the exception of one small family, right? It says uh, in the events leading up to the rains pouring down for 40 days and 40 nights and all the inhabitants of the earth being destroyed, it, 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 the Bible relates to us what it is that God is experiencing as he looks at what he has created. It says in Genesis 6, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Right? And we look at that and we'd say, well, I could certainly understand how God would be angry as he looks at the wickedness being perpetrated by all mankind, right? I, 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 I don't know that there's a whole lot of, of, of hyperbole or exaggeration in the description of the state of human beings at this point. It says the wickedness was great. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart. It's as if uh, men and women were doing their best to engineer and invent new ways to commit wickedness. And as God looked out, this is what it says of him. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. It grieved him to his heart. Jesus, he looked out on the city, and he wept, and he wailed. And I think it's a good reminder for us of the tendency that we have to, you know, oftentimes be like how we characterize God— Uh, rather than how God actually is. Uh, You and I, in our experience, we tend toward anger as well, don't we? When somebody's doing something that we don't like, when somebody's doing something that we perceive as as hurtful, either to themselves or to others— like our tendency is to immediately go to anger. And I want to ask you this morning, what is it that makes you weep? Again, Jesus, he comes to the city. He looks out in the city and he's just overcome with emotion. Is there, is there anything that, that, that causes you, as you observe what is going on in this world around us, that just doesn't spark simple anger, or wrath on, in you, but, but weeping. Like, is there something for which you just feel this heavy burden, this deep desire to see that what is going on is not right, and, and, and you know it's not right. And uh, yes, as, as angry as it might make you, it's, it just leads me to weep. I, I think, um, and believe me, if you know me at all, you know, like how uh, guarded I am as I say this, because I'm not prone to uh, heavy, heavy levels of emotion. But I would say that we could all be challenged with the idea that we should be—that we should weep more. <laughs> right? That that um, we do—we ev- do everything we can to insulate ourselves from the pain of this world and from uh, from embracing any of that pain for ourselves and yet it feels like it's very characteristic for those who would follow Jesus that they come to this place and have this experience where what is going on around us even those things that maybe don't directly affect us just they they, they it drives us to our knees like what is the Jerusalem for us what is the Jerusalem for you what is that that, that That city that you observe and and man, it just you just find yourself with this burden, this desire in your heart to see something different from what is that 's where Jesus is with Jerusalem. oh, he says, if you had known, if only you had known what makes for peace, and yet now it is hidden from. Your eyes, I want to encourage you today to just like open your heart to see things as God sees them and perhaps he will reveal something to you that, that will, it will cause you to weep. Um, I, in the little bit that I um, troll Facebook uh, here and there, I don't, I don't see a lot of weeping most of the time. What I see is anger. Right? I mean, like real anger, like wrath, like hatred uh, from one side to the other. And listen, there's enough sadness in this world to bring every single one of us to a place where we're just, where, we, where, where we're weeping, where we're wailing over the condition that describes so much of the human experience. Not only does, I think, The contrast of Jesus weeping against the characterization of God that is largely uh, about wrath and anger. But but there's also this interesting contrast between the weeping over the city that Jesus does and the joy and the celebration that the people of the city are ultimately going to participate in. Again, get the picture. Jesus approaches the city mourning what is about to happen to them. And then as Jesus actually enters into the city, what happens? Woohoo! Right? The people of the city are rejoicing. The people of the city are full of joy, of anticipation for what they think the Messiah is ultimately going to come and do. And what he's going to rescue them from. And how he is going to lead this revolution. Right? They are, the, the crowd is overwhelmed with joy. And it's because they were blind. They were unable to see all of those things for which Jesus was mourning. And boy, how much does that speak to us as well. How much do we find ourselves in our lives, you know, given to the the joy and the celebration for all of the good that's happening, and yet sometimes we're blind to what needs to change. We're blind to what needs God's intervention in our lives. We're blind to see what is so, or what would be so obvious to Jesus himself, and I wonder, does that kind of reflect our lives as well? Are we, are we laughing and dancing and celebrating and yet blind to the darkness that reigns over us, over which God is weeping? You find that again and again and again in the, in, in, in the gospels. You find you know, in Jesus's interaction with people, you find so many times people that think they've got it all right, that everything's fine, that they have... Uh, peace with God through their own righteousness and through their own religious system, and yet there is such darkness inside of them in one place, Jesus describes the the, the most religious those who were using the power of religion to oppress other people and to benefit themselves. And he says of them, you guys are like whitewashed tombs, all nice and clean on the outside, but full of dead man's bones. And you know, it's so easy for us to fall into the same kind of trap in our lives, to just simply try to pretty up The ground around, right, to pretty up the outside to make sure that the siding is scraped and painted, right? And the windows are washed and the lawn is green, right? And everything looks so wonderful and good, yet everything that's going on on the inside, well, not everything, but something, is just neglected, forgotten about. Not cared about. Like, that's not a thing I want to relinquish to God. And so we have to be careful that we are open to the work that God wants to do in our lives. Because the reality is, as, as okay and as alright as we might think we are right now, that there's a really good chance that God wants to do this great work inside of you inside of me this great work that will liberate me that will free me from the chains of darkness uh, that are that are currently reigning in my own life chains that maybe i don't even really feel a darkness that i don't really even perceive but I have to be open to what it is that God wants to do for me. Jesus says, would that you, this is what he expresses to the city. Would that you, even you, had known this day the things that make for peace. Jesus understood that the inhabitants of Jerusalem, they had this lack of understanding for what, like what are the ingredients for peace in our lives? What is it that actually brings Peace. We're told in the Bible um, occasionally in, in the prophetic literature, right, that there are those that uh, are false prophets that proclaim peace, peace, peace when there is no peace, right? They, they, they want for the inhabitants of their cities to feel at peace, To feel that there is nothing but prosperity that defines their experience. And yet God looks and he sees something entirely different. And Jesus says, oh, if you had only known on this day what makes for peace. Jesus uh, here also as we read it kind of forecasts what's ultimately, going to, what's ultimately going to happen to the city of Jerusalem, right? He talks about how they're going to be surrounded and hemmed in from every side and how not one stone is going to be left on top of another. Language that expresses that every single thing in the city is going to be ultimately turned or changed from what it was supposed to be. That one, not one not one rock will be left in its proper place. And it's because they failed to really understand what makes for peace. How did they do that? Well, I think, and we see this expressed about God's people from time to time. One of the problems that the inhabitants of Jerusalem had regarding their religion and their, their, their understanding of God and kind of where they stood with him was that their worship was insincere. Right? Their worship of God was insincere. It, it, it wasn't really authentic. Jesus quotes the prophet Isaiah, who speaks of the kind of religious condition that defined God's people. He says, this people, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Why, uh, uh, a heart-wrenching summary that describes people that put on this show of what it means to be in a right relationship with God, right? They're doing all of the right things. From an outside perspective, it looks like they've got all their ducks in a row. Everything is as it should be. And yet God says... This people, they honor me with their lips. They come and with their lips, they express worship. With their lips, they express gratitude. With their lips, they express their love and their devotion and their commitment to me. But all the while, their heart is far from me. It's just a show. It's just pretend. (laughs) Who of us have not done that? Right? Who of us have not um, had as part of our experience, a worship of God that was purely exterior. That was purely done with our lips, but with a heart that is far from God. And Jesus says, in vain they do worship me, teaching as the doctrines, teaching as doctrines, the commandments of men, that that people have come to be far more concerned about what other people think about them then they are concerned about what God thinks about them, right? And there's a problem uh, and, and a schism that is created between God and his people when their worship can be defined or described as such. One that honors God with lips, but whose hearts are far from the heart of God. And Jesus says of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, when he expresses this, oh, if you had only known what makes for peace, he says, but now they are hidden from your eyes. They're hidden from your eyes, like the things that make for peace. In the Hebrew mind, there was this understanding that true peace only came. Listen, it only came when a person was at peace with God. That in order for a person to truly experience peace, it was not just about like, you know, not fighting with your spouse at home, not fighting with your kids or your parents, not fighting with people at work. It wasn't just about the peace that we try to have with other human beings. At its basest place, it required a peace with God. I had to, if I was going to have peace, I had to be at peace with God. They understood that. And they didn't have that peace because they weren't in right, they weren't really in right relationship with him. Uh, Not only were they, were their hearts insincere, but their hearts were also willfully ignorant. I mean, think, as Jesus, Jesus said, they are hidden from your eyes. These things that you need They're hidden from you, right? Remember from time to time Jesus would talk about uh, people who have eyes to see, but they don't see. They have ears to hear, but they don't hear, right? They don't understand. That sometimes uh, the way we try to orchestrate and rule and reign our own lives, it actually prohibits us from being able to see what is immediately obvious and around us. So much so that, the inhabitants of G, uh, of Jerusalem failed. Think about this. They wholly failed to see God in Jesus. I mean, it's. I I think I think it's kind of lost on us. It's certainly lost on me. Like I I I just I can't even come to the place to, where I really appreciate like how insanely ridiculous. It is what Jesus did for three years on this earth and how he was rejected, ultimately. Like, you know, we read about these just amazing and fabulous stories about what Jesus did and who Jesus was, and ultimately he was rejected, right? Why? Because the people of Jerusalem, the people of Israel, they wanted their own version of the Messiah, You know, the one that they described, the one that they defined, the one that they wrote up about, right? The one that they characterized as they thought about, well, what, what does it take to be a Messiah? What does a Messiah look like, right? They had their list. They had their understanding of what all those things were. And Jesus just didn't ultimately line up to what the people of God thought was supposed to be their Messiah. And so they rejected him. Their hearts were willfully ignorant. How how often do we do, are we guilty of just exactly the same thing? Just willful ignorance about what is or what should be so obvious and so apparent. I do it all the time. You probably do it too. The mind is an amazing thing. The ability that we have to sugarcoat, to sweep under the rug, to forget about, to just go along with. Their hearts were willfully ignorant. And so much so that they rejected their Messiah. They rejected God for who he really was because they, just like we do so often, they wanted to create And have and worship their own conception of who God was. And we see that happening more and more and more. I say that, but really it's been the problem from the beginning. Our problem as human beings ultimately comes to this place of our will and our desire to be God in God's place. Like that, everything just kind of points back to that idea. From the beginning, from the story of Adam and Eve, who wanted to set themselves up as God, in the place of God. We all want to do that. If given the choice to be God or not God, which are you going to choose? Right? Sign me up. I I, I, I want to rule and reign over my own heart and life. I want to be uh, ultimately responsible for all of my own decisions and the trajectory of my life, we have a tendency to not want to submit to anything or anyone, right? That's one of the characteristics of what it means to be a human being with a a free will and living under the brokenness and the bondage of sin. And we still persist in that today. We want to make God what we want him to be. We want to color in, The pages, the colors that we want, right? We want to create the boundaries or blow out the boundaries altogether and just allow for God to be anything that anyone wants. And yet, the Bible, God's written word, and Jesus Christ, the ultimate expression of everything and everything, One that God is. He is who he is. And we choose whether we're going to accept or reject him. And then what does Jesus do? Well, he enters into the city finally. He goes into the temple and he began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. You have made it a den of robbers. what I find so interesting about this is that uh, this act of Jesus going into the temple, right? And throwing over the tables, driving out the money changers, right? we're not really going to get into what, uh, the reason for why Jesus is doing this cleansing of the temple. But except to say that uh, this would be described as a messianic act. This is the kind of thing you might uh, ascribe to whoever would be the Messiah. What's interesting is all of the things that people might have thought the Messiah was going to do as he brings in revolution. Again, the people of Jerusalem are hoping for, longing for Jesus to lead them in a revolt against Rome. And to deal with all the problems that are outside of them. Let's get our sovereignty back, right? That's, that's their heart. That's their desire. That's what they're looking for in their Messiah. That's what they were cheering for and celebrating when Jesus came into the city. And then Jesus goes and does something entirely different. He walks into the temple. The House of God, if you will, and He cleanses that. Think about that. How are we like the people of the city of Jerusalem? I, I think we are like them in that we want God to cleanse the things outside that are bothering us. Like, what is it? If, if, what would it mean for you to have the Messiah? Come into your life and, and fix things for you. Like for what would you be looking for that Messiah to solve or to cure? Maybe there's a few people that would drop out of your life once and for all. It wouldn't bother you anymore if the Messiah would just do what the Messiah is supposed to do. Maybe there's some uh, challenge or difficulty that you're going through that if the Messiah would do what the Messiah is supposed to do, you would ultimately be delivered from, right? We are constantly looking for God to work on the outside of us and deal with those things that are bothering us. And I think that what we need to understand this morning is that for as much as we want God to cleanse the things outside that are bothering us, God is far more inclined to cleanse the things inside that are bothering him. That what it means for me to live under the rule and reign of the Messiah uh, has so much more to do with what God wants to do and change inside of me and probably less to do with all of those things outside. For which I am looking for some solutions, some answers. So I close with this where, where does the Messiah ultimately want to reveal himself? to you where does jesus want to reveal himself as messiah today as he as he looks maybe from a distance and observes your life and my life like what is he looking at what is he seeing that's going on in there for which maybe he is moved to weep and to mourn and to feel sorrow what are the things that i am doing in my life that create sorrow in the heart of God. Cuz again, I don't think that God's disposition toward us tends to be anger and wrath and like, oh man, I hope he I hope she steps over the line cuz as soon as he or she does, I'm gonna I'm gonna get him. But I think that God is disposed so many times to look at his children and feel the sorrow for which our decisions and our choices and our Neglect of him and what he wants to do in our lives ultimately leads him to feel. So where does the Messiah want to reveal himself to you in this season? Maybe for somebody out there, maybe it's the place where you fully and finally embrace who he wants to be in your life. Like we talk about this idea of allowing Jesus to be our savior and our Lord. That we have been invited into the kingdom of God as he has brought it to this earth. Which requires, if we are going to participate in that kingdom, that we let him be the king in that realm. And maybe you're here today. Maybe you're listening. And you say, you know what? What I need to do is finally, and not just finally, but fully embrace Jesus for who he wants to be in my life. Maybe you're here today and, uh, and you've done that. You've, you've embraced Jesus. You're living in the domain of his kingdom. You would, for all practical purposes, call him King and Lord, and you worship him as such. That's great. But maybe today there's, there's a table in that heart of yours. There's a table in that heart of mine that Jesus just wants to overturn for all the, man, I wish God would deal with this and I wish God would deal with that. Maybe, maybe there's something in you, maybe there's something in me today that God wants to cleanse in here. The Messiah, instead of bringing revolution for the city, he goes into the house of God and begins a work from within. And I believe that God wants to do that in our lives as well. Let's pray together. Father, Lord, I ask that you would just help us to more fully embrace what it means to worship a God who is so intimately and wonderfully and eternally concerned about each of our lives. Lord, I I believe you look out at an assembled congregation like this along with all those maybe that are viewing from home or at a later time. Lord, you look and see every single one of us as individuals whom you love like crazy, that you want to bring into this life that is full and blessed and at peace, at peace with God, at peace with one another. Lord, I pray, would you open our eyes and help us to see today, what are those things that make for peace? Lord, if there's anybody here today that is fighting against God, that is not at peace with God, would you just break down those walls? Would you open up hearts? Would you help us to just yield ourselves to you and stop fighting? Stop kicking against the work that you want to do. But Lord, would you help us to just throw our hands up in surrender and say, God, Whatever that work is that you want to do in my heart and life, I am open to it. Go ahead and do it. Lord, as you cleanse the temple, would you cleanse our hearts as well? Lord, would you help us to refrain from trying to make Jesus the kind of Messiah that we want him to be and allow him to be the Messiah that he is? Because, Lord, I believe that we'll find as we do that a God that we can describe as nothing but good and right and just and loving and one who has every single one of our best interests in mind. Lord, just renew our hearts, our faith in that work that you want to do in us today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me this morning? band's going to close us out with a song just speaking of the goodness of God and I think it's really important for us to understand this morning just how good that God is. A God that is looking at every single one of us here today dying for us to embrace what he has for us if we would but open ourselves up to him. Let's sing this in worship to him this morning.